Vision has just the right mix of music, inspiration and fun to kickstart your day. Rise and shine with Fel and DJ. Weekdays at breakfast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Some new research appears to confirm what so many Christians hold as one of the evils of our times that children could be encouraged to change their bodies because of gender confusion or what we sometimes know as gender dysphoria. We might agree it's tragic when children are caught in the medicalization process because of gender dysphoria. Well, some new research suggests that many children did not have the cognitive, psychological or emotional capacity to understand the decisions they were making about their bodies. And a recent Australian study by the Gender Clinic at the Children's Hospital at Westmead in Sydney concludes that there's a need to bring into play a different model of mental health care for children presenting with gender dysphoria. Terry Kelleher is the National President of the Australian Family Association. They've been monitoring these developments very closely. Terry, a special welcome back to 2020. Thank you very much, Neil. Terry, this takes this idea of gender dysphoria a little deeper here and just recognises quite blatantly the bad effects on kids, doesn't it? It certainly does. And it's a really interesting study because that clinic at Westmead was only opened in 2013. And right from the outset, they did research and they kept data. Now, this is what um, was asked of Greg Hunt by I don't know how many you know, prominent psychiatrists and physicians had actually asked him to set up a review, an Australia-wide review of the protocols of the clinics. Now, that's just sort of died a, you know, a quiet death and hasn't come about. But in the light of that, this shows that I think the Westmead Clinic has been very responsible because it's actually looked at the data and it's come up with the data and that is, yes, as you said, that the medicalisation of the treatment is something that we have to take a pause on. And they talk of the need to bring into play a biopsychosocial trauma-informed model of mental health care for those children presenting with gender dysphoria. In simple terms, I guess that is a different regime to what they'd implement so far as counselling for children goes. Because as I understand from the notes that I've seen about the study, sometimes parents arrive at the clinic and they've got their children in tow and they're just anticipating that they just go straight into all of these dreadful effects that actually change the bodies of the children. So a different counselling model, Terry. Well, that's certainly the case. Um, those were challenges that the, the clinicians at the centre said they, they, um, they faced, that families and children were arriving and they expected to go onto the medical model. And this is all because of the way in which it is being presented, you know, in the media, on social media um, and on the internet. So that is, that's a challenge for them to be able to step back, if you see what I mean, and actually enter counselling. And, you know, they were very concerned about the level of, say, family dysfunction. Um, Poor family dysfunction was often not recognised or understood as being relevant to the gender dysphoria. So the families just didn't see it uh, as necessary to engage in family therapy or to explore, you know, difficulties, psychological family or lost trauma issues or sexual abuse. 
they just don't see the need for it. That's how they arrive, and the, and the doctors are saying that that's very difficult for us, but they still say, and this is really important, that um, it's necessary. It's necessary to pause. We need to take a pause and step back and look at what is the best treatment model, you know, and how can we actually meet our obligations as doctors, and also they're concerned about the legal implications of this. You know, if they don't give fully informed uh, all the information about all the side effects, if they don't give them full counselling, well, you know, they could be legally uh, responsible for not for failing in their duty of care to their patient, to the child. So when the family arrives, they have their child in tow and the children have already made up their minds what they want. Uh, they've got an entrenched belief and that's coming, no doubt, through what we might even term propaganda about this ideological position on gender here. What are your concerns for the fact that families are feeling powerless? Well, certainly I think, yes, um, families are, first of all, they are just a subject, the parents, to how it's been presented. Um, I think it's been presented in through the school curriculum to an extent and also on the media, you know, in, in the media, social media, in the press, that, you know, gender dysphoria, well, this is, you have to affirm it. And then they equate affirming the gender, you know, the gender identity of the child with the medicalization of it. You have to follow the medical model rather than the deeper counselling model, at least, you know, at the outset. Um, and then parents, I think, are caught in a bind. If they really want to explore all treatment options and have that sort of counselling, that exploration of what might be going on in the family, or things that may have happened to the child. Um, well, certainly in Victoria, we're in trouble here because the recent conversion practices ban would seem to cover that. And so, well, the medical professionals are not allowed to engage in that kind of counselling, any kind of counselling that doesn't affirm gender transitioning. So as so, you say, you know, in Victoria, where you've got this new law that comes into effect in February next year, it's a little bit like a big stick looming over the medical profession. Uh, it doesn't matter what part of the medical profession or the counselling profession, uh, you've got this idea, and I think the study refers to what they call a conveyor belt or a tick-the-box mentality. Yeah. And so any medical people who are wanting to have the welfare of the child at heart are going to be very resistant with the idea that there's a threat of 10 years in prison and huge fines. So this idea of tick the box and put the kids through and get all that going, that's that's going to be something that's just going to happen all the time in Victoria. Well, yes, that that's their legal obligation, or rather to avoid a complaint. They'd be very cautious about it. But on the other hand, they have a legal obligation to the child and I mean, there's no way of knowing whether a child who presents with gender dysphoria or distress will continue to have that distress because there's a huge desistance rate. I think it's between, you know, 87, 98% or something of young of children actually are not gender dysphoric. They are comfortable with their natal sex through puberty, once they've gone through puberty. So if you intervene, if you interfere in it with the medicalization of it with puberty blockers and then sex hormones, well, you set the child on, on a course that's going to be very hard to deviate from. And the research has shown very few do. Most who go on puberty blockers, it's a very, very small percentage, one or two percent, who don't continue on to cross-sex hormones. So that, that is really concerning. And then they're on cross-sex hormones for the duration until they might decide they want to detransition with all the difficulties of that. 
and even getting any help around detransitioning becomes an impossibility under yes. the laws as they are proposed. Let me just put ourselves into this circumstance for a moment here, Terry, and uh, you might be able to remember when you were uh, somewhere 10, 11, 12 years of age, you weren't thinking about your own family and how many children you might have and what sort of a parent you might make. It seems to be this study has found that children in that early and mid-adolescence found it difficult to consider these sorts of issues, as we all would, about parenthood and about fertility and about all sorts of things that could happen in our future. Exactly. Yes, yes, that's what the the study found, because, you know, they're they're not thinking about it. They're not thinking about their future capacity to bear children or parenthood, exactly. But these issues, because they're not yet pertinent to the child or relevant to them at their developmental stage, but it may be a matter of deep regret, probably will be later in their lives. And I mean, Kira Bell, you know, the young woman in, in the UK, she has said that is of deep regret for her. She doesn't know yet whether she has been, you know, whether she is, uh, her fertility has been impaired. These are really serious lifelong consequences. So this study is saying, pause, there is another model. It's not as though if you don't immediately put the child onto a medical model that the child has been abandoned. That, that's not the case at all. And I mean, Kenneth Zucker, the Canadian um, endocrinologist, he worked for many years until he was sacked because of his view. Um, and his view was that, you know, you don't abandon the child with a wait-and-see approach with counselling. What you do is you support the child through that process. And then you see, now if the child through puberty doesn't desist and is still distressed, well, then you might start to consider it a medical model. And it gives the time then, of course, to investigate any psychological problems or problems with abuse or family problems in, in the interim so it really is a pause and caution, pause, uh, let's reconsider this. And there is a, can I just go on and very quickly say, uh, Neil, um, that there is an international momentum now to back off from the medicalisation of the treatment. In June 2020 in the UK, the National Health Service amended its website and it no longer claims that puberty blockers are fully reversible. Okay, and then in December 2020, there was the decision of the UK High Court in relation to the Tavistock Gender Clinic in London or in the UK um, and the High Court rebuked the Gender Clinic for its surprising lack of basic data and investigation as to what was happening with patients and it described treatment with puberty blockers as experimental. Now the Tavistock Clinic immediately called a halt to any use of puberty blockers or hormones for young people under 16 when that decision was handed down in December However, they haven't changed their guidelines on their website. It still says that puberty blockers are reversible. Um, I think they might be waiting for their appeal. They have put an appeal against that, that High Court decision and will be heard uh, next month at the end of June. Then um, in Sweden, just a few days ago, um, the Karolinska Hospital in Sweden had ended its practice of prescribing puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for minors under 16 and to produce new guidelines. Finland also just recently has revised its guidelines to prioritise psychological interventions and counselling and support rather than immediately going to medical interventions. So that's the way it's going internationally, whereas you know, in, in um, Australia, certainly in Victoria, the Rural Children's Hospital guidelines still says the effects of puberty blockers are reversible, 
It does acknowledge that the long-term impact on bone density is not known, but it does say they are reversible. And also the Australian Health Authorities, they should be gathering this data, and they were requested by um, Greg Hunt, the Federal Minister for Health, and that was, oh, that would be 15, 16 months ago. So that is something that really, really needs to be done because that is the way the international momentum is building, that just pause, um, pause on the medicalisation of this gender dysphoria and look at, you know, providing the best treatment for children. Start well, with actually trying to find out what's going on. This is homegrown Australian research, uh, the gender clinic yes. at the Children's Hospital at Westmead in Sydney. And as you say, Terry Kelleher, there's more international movements that are rising and they are voicing their concern over this. And there might be challenges, and especially for Victorians today, because there's legislation already in place that as of next February will not allow anyone to speak up uh, and uh, in, at risk of uh, jail time and huge fines. Uh, other states not quite as far down the track, but many thinking of going that direction. Terry, to get more details, uh, to access this research, is there a link on the ncc.org.au website? That's the National Civic Council and Australian Family Association website. Is this sort of detail available for people who are interested? Well, Neil, they should go to Newsweekly. Dot com, and they'll get the Newsweekly magazine and there's a link in the article when you read it online there's a, a direct link to the study Okay. and I've News... just got a, a new article which is going up online which is following up this international momentum and it's got more detail about those countries and their guidelines but if you go to newsweekly.com newsweekly.com there'll be a link in that article to access the research that we've been talking about today. Terry Kelleher is the National President of the Australian Family Association. It's an ecumenical, not-for-profit voluntary organisation, provides a forum and a vehicle for individuals and organisations concerned with the strengthening and support of the family. You'll find that link at the newsweekly.com site and you could also visit the ncc.org.au site. That's the website of the National Civic Council, the Australian Family Association. Terry Kelleher, thanks so much for your insights today on 2020. Thank you so much for letting us get the information out, Neil. Thank you. God bless. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.